So if you have a Bible, open it up to Jeremiah chapter 37 and 38. Otherwise, I'll have it for you on the screen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much this morning. Uh, God, I pray that you would begin to do the work in us, the work of perseverance, the work that says we're not going to quit. We're not going to give up. We're not going to give in, God, that there is a vision you have for our lives, and even if it requires stamina, which it will, that you will give us the strength to endure. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, again, that video was really part of a process uh, in which we began to talk about Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's sort of uh, final um, I don't want to say final because he's got. There's more in the book than this, but this is the final uh, where we're going through, where essentially we're talking about getting up after you've been knocked down. One of the men in that video was a man by the name of Walter Payton. Uh, he was actually a little earlier uh, than Barry Sanders. He was in the 70s and 80s. One of the running backs that I watched as a kid. And the interesting thing about Walter Payton is that he played. 13 years as a running back for the Chicago Bears. During his career, he rushed for 16,726 yards. That's a lot of yards. That's over nine miles long. And here's the interesting thing. What makes that figure even more spectacular is that Walter Payton did that while having somebody knock him down every 4.6 yards. Get it? He kept getting knocked down, and he got back up, and he kept going, and he kept going, and he kept going. Life is a lot like that. We have to learn to get back up after we've been knocked down. And Jeremiah, too, kept getting knocked down. Jeremiah, by the time we get to chapter 37 in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has been faithful to proclaim this message for 40 years. As long as I have been alive, Jeremiah was preaching the message, wait, one day there's going to be an enemy army named Babylon. They're going to come, they're going to lay siege, and they're going to win. And in that day when they do it, don't fight back, just surrender. This is of God's doing. That's not a very popular message, is it? Jeremiah had faithfully proclaimed that for 40 years. And now, by the time we get to chapter 37, now all the warnings and predictions are coming true. Now the army is at the gates. It's like uh, if you ever seen Lord of the Rings where they look out over the gates and they just see the army as far as the horizon. This is exactly what has happened to Jerusalem. The Babylonian army has surrounding it and they are building siege ramps and siege uh, uh, warfare uh, weapons to try to either uh, over, go over the walls or break through the walls. Now, you would think that after proclaiming this message, that after it was fulfilled before their very eyes, that the people would start to believe Jeremiah and say, what should we do? But the fact of the matter is this. The people only got harder toward Jeremiah. They only got more mad. The more his prophecies came true, the more they beat him, the more they insulted him, the more they mocked him, the more they cut him down, the more they wanted to throw him in prison, the more they wanted to kill him, the more his prophecies were coming true. They kept taking shots at him. They kept putting him down, but he never gave up. Here, let me give you some of the context. In Jeremiah chapter 37, in Jeremiah chapter 37, Babylon is actually in a temporary withdrawal. 
because the, the Jews uh, sent a message down to Egypt and said, will you come help us? If you come help us, we'll serve you rather than them. So Egypt says, well, maybe this is a good way to make a deal. So they get their army ready. They start coming forward. Babylon gets wind of it. So they go down and they're going to win a major victory over the Egyptian army. During this slight reprieve, you can get out of the city. So Jeremiah, uh, he bought a field and he might have, uh, the context is kind of unclear. He might have inherited some more property in the land of Benjamin, which is not in Judea. And so he wants to leave the city to go claim this land. One of the guards looks and says, look, Jeremiah is defecting to the enemy. He's been against us all along. And look, now he's trying to get out of the city so he can go to them. And so they arrest him and they beat him and they beat him severely and they throw him in prison. This is in chapter 37. King Zedekiah, he kind of likes Jeremiah. He doesn't like what he's saying, but he's like, you know, this guy could be a man of God. If we got any shot of winning this, we're going to need God on our side. So he calls for Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, will you give us a word of prophecy? Now, at this point, it would have been so easy. And I'll tell you this, I, I'm te- I would have been tempted in this fashion. I would have been very much tempted to say, you know what? You've heard what I said for 40 years. Uh, I don't need to say it anymore because all the prophecies have come true. Just let me go. Let me go in peace and I won't make any more trouble. And if that was Jeremiah's mission, that's exactly what he would have done. But instead, Jeremiah looks at the king right in the eyes and he says, King Zedekiah, I do have a word for you, but you're not going to like it you will be handed over to the king of Babylon. And so, once again, the officials confer, and now they are outright mad. Now Jeremiah, when he could have said something nice, he could have been a little encouraging. He could have got with the program. He could have at least given the troops a little pep talk. He could have done something. But instead, after being beaten and after being in prison, he still wouldn't change his message. The officials are mad. And they say, King, we got a plan for Jeremiah. And the king's like, don't, don't openly execute him. If you openly execute him, the people are going to freak out. Like, no, no, no. We don't need to do that. You see, uh, we know of Malchiah. Uh, he has a dried up cistern. We'll throw him down there and throw away the key. So Zedekiah is weak. He vacillates a lot. And he basically lets his officials make the decision. Now, for those of you who know your Old Testament, as long as God was with the people, what was never supposed to run dry? The cisterns, right? So the fact that we have a dry cistern should be a major red flag to the people. Ding, ding, ding. God is not with us. But they don't get it. And so they throw Jeremiah into the cistern. And now Jeremiah is about three days away from death. Why? Well, you can go, what, three months without food? Or no, three weeks without food, three months without something else. But you can only go three days without water. So after they throw Jeremiah in the cistern, we get to chapter 38. And King Zedekiah is having a little second thoughts. He wants to talk to Jeremiah again. And so they bring him up out of the cistern. And now Jeremiah is emaciated. He's weak. He can probably barely talk. He's probably severely dehydrated. Look, 
if, if, there, if anybody has done his duty, if anybody has done his duty for God and country, it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, all you need to do is drink the Kool-Aid and just get with the program. But the fact of the matter is, once again, Jeremiah would not give up and would not back down from his mission. It says here in Jeremiah 38, 17, Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared. And this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given to the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down and you yourself will not escape from them. Jeremiah kept getting knocked down. And Jeremiah kept getting back up. He kept persevering. He never gave up. Now, for some of you, don't you want to like ask the obvious question? How did he do that? That's my message today. How did Jeremiah persevere in the face of almost certain danger? And my first point is this. Jeremiah refused a lifestyle of giving up. Jeremiah was not the only prophet in Israel and Judah that was talking about this. There was another one, at least one other that we know of. A lot of people think... Well, poor Jeremiah, he was the only one out there doing this. That's why nobody was listening to him. No, there was at least one other that we know of. Check this out. It says, Now Uriah, son of Shemaiah, from Kiriath-Jerim, was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. He was a legitimate prophet. He prophesied the same things against the city and this land as Jeremiah did. But when King Jehoiakim and his officers heard it, the king was determined to put him to death. Same as Jeremiah. But what did Uriah do? When Uriah heard of it, he fled in fear to Egypt. Here's one thing about a prophet. If you fled in fear, they didn't believe you. So they found him in Egypt and they killed him. That was Uriah's fate. But Uriah unfortunately had refused or didn't get the memo to refuse a lifestyle of giving up there's a direct correlation between perseverance and potential if you have a habit of giving up and believe me i've looked over my life and i can say i can see this part of me that wants to give up when the going gets tough wants to get up when i don't really care about something wants to give up when i'm tired wants to give up when i'm grumpy wants to give up when i'm emotional wants to give up when i'm hungry wants to give up i mean it's so it's easier to give up it's far easier to give up than to stay in it if you want to experience success in life that is what you have to overcome that's the price the price of success is not just good ability the price of success is perseverance. The price of success is not quitting when you've got a thousand voices telling you to. This is exactly the first point that Jeremiah, he had learned so well. It's no doubt that it is the easy thing to do, but it's not always the right thing. When I was a long time ago in my first church I was ever pastor at, and this church was like in the ghetto of Seattle, like the northern ghetto of Seattle, the Aurora Corridor, and it was a nasty place. It's, it's, it's just, it just is a nasty place. 
And, but we had a wonderful little church. It's like a lighthouse in the midst of all this darkness. And, and uh, we had a wonderful little church. And I remember uh, I was out, it was the first time I was ever a youth pastor. And this couple had wanted to meet with me. And they were an old couple, uh, very, very old. I, I don't know how old they were, but they looked very old. And, and they sat down, and boy, they were so full of life. And they said to me, hey, Tom, we know that the church budget here in, in this little small ghetto church, although they didn't say it like that, but we know it's quite small. So if you ever need something for the youth group, we want you to call us, and we'll see if we can buy it for you. Oh, I'll tell you, love pastor, youth pastors, they love people like that. You know, that's, uh, that's the people you want to find, you know. So I remember, like, thinking, you're my new best friends. You know, <laughs> I'm going to call you all the time. But I, I remember, you know, they were, how can I put it? They were almost uncomfortable, uncomfortably lovey-dovey. Uh, I don't know. There's something about seeing, like, a pair of teenagers like that. But when like, you're, like, you know, pushing 80, you know, I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, they're really cuddly. Oh, wow, they're really like touching each other. And, you know, he, he's always like, come here, come here, come here, come here. He's always give her a kiss. You know, I'll be like right in front of me. Like, ah, you know, what do you do with that? You know, and so I finally, I said, man, I got to ask, you know, are, are you guys like, how do you guys keep that going? You know, I mean, that's like, you know, that's awesome. You know, and, and, and she said, do you really want to hear the story? And I'm thinking to myself, people usually don't ask unless they really want to hear the story. So, yes, I really want to hear the story. And, and uh, she looked at me. She said, well, it hasn't always been easy. In fact, uh, my husband, uh, he committed adultery on my marriage eight times. Eight times. And I remember, and I remember when she said it, he was smiling. I almost wanted to slap him at first. You know, but I realized he was smiling, not because he was proud of it, because he had been healed of it. He, she said, my husband was a broken man. And believe me, every time he violated our marriage, I could see it hurt him a lot more than it hurt me. I was hurt. He was devastated. And she said, uh, I decided that I was going to stick with him. Everybody in the world was saying, leave him, dump him, get rid of him. But she said, I had a vision of what our marriage could be one day. And I was willing to pay the price of a lifetime to pursue it. If I was wrong, then in the end, I would have died trying to pursue a noble thing. And if I was right, perhaps I would have a marriage unlike no other. And I remember he began to tear up. I remember he began to tear up. And he began to talk about how God used his wife, how he had become healed. And now he was free and happy and that he loved his wife so much. And I, I can't remember what he told me. He said, I'm pushing something. Maybe it was 70, maybe it was 80. He said, and all I can think about during the day is I can't wait to get home to my wife. Eight adulteries later, that was the count. Now, here's the funny thing. My generation, <laughs> after the first adultery, in fact, after the first whiff, after the first sly glance, we are like out of there, you know? I don't know what it is, but I mean, you just like even like dream of sleeping with another person. We're like, divorce papers, let's sign it, you know? For some reason, 
my generation, Gen X, and especially underneath us, we have no tolerance for anything like that, no forgiveness. So we, we just get out of things really quick. And I worry about us because we're cultivating a lifestyle of giving up. Now, I'm not saying that every situation, you know, sometimes you do have to get out. Sometimes there's abuse. So I'm not trying to say this is a blanket statement. But take the example here. This lady had a vision. And she was willing to go through eight adulteries to see that vision. But she finally saw it. And I could see the truth of it in her eyes. And you could not take the joy away from those two lovebirds. They found something. It took a long, hard road to get there. But she had refused a lifestyle of giving up in favor of sticking it through. And she, she got the blessing from it. She came out the better. And so point number one, refuse a lifestyle of giving up. Point number two, Jeremiah rejected the wrong belief that life should be easy. How many of you are like, life should be easy, you know? It should be easy. I became a Christian. I have God in my life. And now that I have this great, wonderful, loving God, life should be easy, right? And of course, the moment life doesn't get easy, what's the first thing we toss? Usually our relationship with God, right? Because after all, having God in our life should mean life is easy. What allowed Jeremiah to be Jeremiah and stick it through to the end is he rejected that thought. God told him from the very beginning, life's not going to be easy. You're in a war. In that war, some people get hurt. In that war, some people die. In that war, some people... Jeremiah, in this war, you're going to get hurt. But what did God say? I will be with you every step of the way. Jeremiah refused to say that life was going to be easy. Jeremiah chapter 12, God says to Jeremiah, if you've raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how are you going to compete with the horses? Jeremiah, I thought, I know you thought this was going to be a foot race. Oh, this is a horse race. Uh, if you're stumbling in the safe country, how are you going to manage in the thickets by the Jordan? In other words, Jeremiah, you have this expectation that life's going to be easy. You're going to be like Elijah, you know, and, and, and you're going to call down uh, fire from heaven. It's going to lick up the thing. That's not the life I've called you to, Jeremiah. It's not going to be easy. In fact, life can be so hard that I have completely adjusted my pre-marriage counseling around the word expectations. When you have the right expectations, now you have half the battle won. Going in with the right expectations is half the battle. It's when you have the wrong expectations, particularly the expectation that life should always be easy. That's when we can become destroyed. And I've seen people, I've seen something where an event happened and they have lived the last 20 years destroyed because their expectation of the easy life was shattered. I mean, as much as I would love for life to be handed on a silver platter, one of the things that the Bible is very clear, and I saw this as a young man, prepare for a fight, prepare for a war, prepare for good times and bad times, prepare, what does Paul say? Hey man, there's times when I was rich, there's times when I had nothing. There's times where I had bodyguards all around me, then there was times where I was almost beat to death. Reading that has 
It gives you the right expectations of life. There may come good, there may come bad, but the one thing you will always have is that God will be with you. He will be with you so that you do not give up or pursue a lifestyle of giving up. I remember uh, a few, few, uh, few weeks ago, I went camping with Kirk Hessler. He's, he was playing guitar up here. And, uh, and I, I remember I was being a typical Gen Xer crying to a baby boomer. Oh, my life is so hard. Oh, I'm so busy with my kids, and they cost so much money, and I don't want to give my kids money anymore. I just want the money all for myself, you know? I remember I was having a typical pity party. I was telling him, you know, oh, Kirk, I, I need you to pray for me because my life has been so hard. And, and then, uh, you know, and then I realized it was a little focused on me. So I said, well, tell me a little bit about your life. And, and we're talking and we're talking. And finally he says, well, he says, I had one hard thing kind of happen to me once. He's like, one hard thing kind of happened. So I'm thinking it could have been that hard if it kind of happened. And uh, he said, you know, uh, me and my wife and my family, we decided we were going to open up a surf and skate shop. I'm like, that's cool. I want to open up a surf and skate shop. That would be so much fun to be working on skateboards all day and dressing, you know, whatever. And so he said, yeah, well, it was a great idea, but our grand opening was on September 11th, 2001. Imagine all your life savings. Took a mortgage out on your house, a second one. You've got all $50,000 worth of stuff. You've made 500 hot dogs. You invited the whole city to come out to your grand opening. Only the whole city isn't at your grand opening. What's the whole city doing? Watching the television. Watching the second plane go through the World Trade Center. They're not at your grand opening. They're there. And what happened to retail for about the next two to three years? Went completely down. Lost everything. Lost everything. And I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> I've had it hard. <laughs> I felt like a crying, spoiled kid again when I hear. And you know what he looked at me and said? He said, you know what? It was tough, tough times, but God saw us through it. And we're going to be okay. And we're not on the street. We have a house. I eat. I mean, it's all good. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? That's a man who, whose expectations were that life always had to be easy. Sometimes you get it rough. Sometimes you get it tragic. But in the middle of that, you do have the sweet spots. Just always remember to keep those expectations that trouble may come, but the Lord will see you through them all. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, point number three. Jeremiah resisted a wrong belief that success is a destination. Look at Jeremiah chapter 25. He says, for 23 years, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, which was the king before, uh, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken it to you again and again and again and again and again and again and again. But you have not listened. Jeremiah's success came in doing what he knew was right, not with results he couldn't control. Here's the thing. There are things in this life you cannot control. You cannot control the results. 
You cannot control if you're going to get that job. You cannot control if your spouse walks out on you. You cannot control if a tragedy happens and you lose somebody you love. You, you can't control those things. We can't base life's success on, on the things we cannot control. The one thing we can control is that we make the decision to live for God and do what's right. That's what Jeremiah said. I can't control. In fact, here's the thing. God told him, Jeremiah, you're going to say all this stuff, but they're not good. He told him, he said, they're not going to listen to you. I know they're not going to. I'm God. I know they're not going to listen to you. Jeremiah could have very quickly said, God, you are calling me to a ministry of failure? And you know what God's response would have been? Jerry, it depends on how you define failure. If you define success by how the people respond to your message, then yes, you're going to be a failure. If you define success by obeying what I'm telling you to do and doing it faithfully, you're going to be a resounding success. Success is not a destination, it's a lifestyle. You know, I was, I was in my doctor's office and, and she said, okay, we got to lose some weight. I love how they say we. <laughs> and by we, I mean you. <laughs> and uh, I said, that's great. What, what's my goal? What's my weight target goal? I mean, everybody wants to know that, right? You know, uh, and I kind of wanted to know that. Like what, you know, as I'm on a scale, what number am I trying to reach? And she said, you know what? I don't believe in weight goals. I don't believe in target goals. I'm like, really? Why? She said, because a lot of times, once people reach it, they go off their diet. Once people reach it, they abandon the lifestyle that got them there. They've arrived at, at their weight loss goal. She said, look, I'm not going to give you a goal. She said, what I'm going to tell you is this, for the rest of your life, because weight loss is not a destination. It's a lifestyle. It's something you do every day. You never arrive at it. She said, I just want you to eat less sugars, eat more protein, drink more water, and I won't say the second thing. All right, I will say the thing. And watch your poop. So, you know, that's what she said. <laughs> that's what she said. She said, for the rest of your life, that's what you're going to do. And I loved it because, you know what, I was really, like, sad. She was going to say, like, we need to get you down to 120 pounds. 120 pounds? It's a lifestyle, not a destination. There was a, 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 one time I was at a pastor's conference. They had a missionary share. This missionary shared an interesting story. Uh, when he was first married to his wife, they had a very rough marriage. They weren't very close. They weren't very connected. But they, I mean, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to call it quits either. Uh, but they just really struggled. And after a while, he admitted, I was just really beginning to get sick of her. Uh, and then one day, <laughs> he said that to him for all the pastors. So I was getting sick of her. And his wife's right there. So obviously they're still married and there's a silver lining in the story. And he said, but one day my wife's sister's kids had to come and live with us. And I wasn't even all that close with my wife at the time. I really wasn't close with her family. And I really didn't want little kids coming in and messing up my house and getting in the way of all my plans. Because he had plans to open up a business and become a millionaire. So he's like, they're there, but I, didn't, I ignored them. I didn't speak to them. I didn't pay attention to them. They just like kind of occupied space in the house. And all the time I was like, we got to get these kids out of here. We got to get them back with your sister. Well, one night uh, he was sitting down watching television and the eight-year-old girl comes up and says, um, would it be okay 
if I watched television next with you? Could I sit next to you and watch television? And, you know, he's still faking it. He's still kind of grumpy. He's like, oh, it's a free country, you know. And, and he said, you know, I, I reluctantly, you know, yeah, sit next to me if that's what you want to do, you know. And, and so he said over the next few years, he just faked it. In his heart, he hated doing all this stuff. But he said, I, I, I went to the daddy-daughter dance with her. And there were two boys. He said, with the two boys, I went on the Boy Scout hikes and the Boy Scout overnighters. He said, I faked it. Man, you'd have thought I was having a time of my life when all I, everything in my heart was going, when are these kids going to leave, you know, so that I can get on building my career? Because it was really kind of holding me back from my aspirations, and they were costing a lot of money, and, and there was a medical thing with them that cost a lot of money. He's like, I was really tired of paying for kids, and they weren't even my kids. 14 years later, the daughter asks him to walk her down the aisle as she's getting married. And her father, the biological father, was all in favor of it. Hey, you've been there. You've raised her. You've supported her. You should be the one that walks her down the aisle. And so he agrees to. And as he's got her arm in his arm and they're walking down the aisle, she stopped right in the middle. And she took off her veil. And she turned and she looked at him. And she said, thank you. For always being there for me. Thank you so much. And he said in that moment, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. But all of the years of struggle that I had just erupted in emotion. He said, and I grabbed that girl who was my daughter now and I pulled her in and he said I began to weep and wail uncontrollably so much so that the people at the wedding had to get up and help me find a chair I could no longer stand he said from that point on I realized success was not a destination it was a lifestyle him and his wife they quit their jobs and they moved to Cambodia where he is a missionary now full-time, and he rescues girls and boys from slavery. And he said, I live off the charity of people who give money to me. If they don't give, I don't eat. If they don't give, I have no place to live. If they don't give, I have no plane ticket home. I live completely dependent on other people supporting me. He said, that is the exact opposite of the dream I had. He said, but I live every day feeling success in my veins, in my fingers, in my hands, all around me as I know that I am living a lifestyle of pouring my life into others. Success is not a destination. It's a way we live. Number four, Jeremiah relinquished living by emotions. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter one, God says, today I have made you a fortified city an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the, and the people of the land. It's our convictions, not our emotions, that give us the ability to go beyond our abilities. 
if it comes down to my feelings, believe it or not, I cave very quickly. I remember once I went on a diet and we went to the mall back when Dairy Queen was in the mall. I don't know where Dairy Queen went. Is it still in the mall? It's not in the mall anymore, is it? Never mind. So back when Dairy Queen was in the mall, I was on this diet. I was so proud of myself. I'm not going to have any sugar. I'm not, and my wife is with me and she says, oh, I want to go get a cone. So she gets a vanilla cone. And I'm looking, I'm like, oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. And all of a sudden, I just said, God, I'm going to eat now and repent later. And I went and I got myself an ice cream cone because I, it was my emotions. When it's my emotions, it's amazing how quickly I can cave. When it's my feelings, it's amazing how quickly I can throw in the towel and say, you know what? I can't handle this anymore. But when it's convictions, it's amazing how much you'll be able to persevere and press in. This week, I went to the dentist. Not for the first time in my life, but I went to the dentist because I have, and some of you may still have these, I have these uh, fillings in my mouth. And guess what's in them? Yeah, you all have those too, I see. Yeah, Mercury fillings. Now, now here's the thing I figured out. We have known for a long time that mercury is poisonous. A long time. As far back as World War II, we knew mercury was poisonous. I was born 30 years after World War II concluded. So when I'm going to get these fillings, they are knowingly putting a substance inside my mouth that they know is poisonous. I think that they did this because they knew 20 years later, I'd have to spend the money for them to take it out. But anyway, that's my point. That's my stick. We'll just get off of that right now. So now I'm getting all this work done. And here's the thing. They got to stick needles in my gums to numb it oh my goodness can you imagine that that is the most horrible feeling i could when they were sticking the needle in i could feel it up here it's really weird you know how the, how the whole face nerves work and and here's the thing they they did an okay job of numbing but there was one particular side they didn't do a very good job on but when i looked at the clock i realized i gotta go pick my son up from school and one thing i've always told him I will be there on time. He's made me promise, Dad, will you be there on time? I don't want to be like sitting there. Everybody's gone and I'm just like all there by myself. <laughs> so I said, I looked at him very dramatically. I will be there. I will be there. You can depend on me. So I'm in the doctor's office, dentist's office, and I got to go in 15 minutes. So I realized they're starting to do work here. I realized it's not numb. It hurts. It really hurts. So I'm thinking, she said, if it, if it starts hurting, just raise your hand and I'll do some more numb. But the problem is I did that once and it took them like 10 minutes to numb. So I'm looking at the clock and realizing if I raise this hand to numb, I, I'm going to be late for my son. Here's the difference between emotion and conviction. My conviction was this. I am not, I'm not going to let my son down. I gave him my word. My word is my convictions. I'm not going to let him down. If I numb this tooth, that's it. I'll be late. So I remember grabbing the side. I almost wanted to ask for something to bite down on, but it would have been her finger. And, uh, and I remember, oh, it hurts so bad. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, 
Tanya's wrong. I could have a baby if I needed to, you know? <laughs> she always tells me, if it were up to men to have babies, there'd be no babies in the world, you know? I agreed with her up until last week. Now I'm thinking, man, there is a pain threshold that I can take. I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. And it hurt so bad. But the whole time, everything in my mind, I wasn't thinking about the metal hitting my tooth or all the things that were flying out. I was thinking about my son. My son. My conviction to be there for him. It's amazing how much pain you can push through when you've got a conviction. It's amazing how quickly you're cower when it's all about your feelings. Jeremiah refused to live by emotions. And then last but not least, Jeremiah remembered to live with purposeful vision. Jeremiah 29.10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are, here's the thing. What kept Jeremiah going was this. He knew that God's plan for his people was to bring him back. He'd been proclaiming doom and gloom and doom and gloom. And believe me, I would not have wanted Jeremiah's job. I love the fact that my job is every Sunday to come here and tell you, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus has forgiven everything. He's going to take you to heaven. You don't have to be afraid of death. And all of you are going, yay, we like that. We like that. We'll come every Sunday to hear that. That's great. Can you imagine coming every Sunday for me telling you, in 40 years, North Korea is going to own America. In 40 years, we're all going to have to learn Korean. In four, I mean, can you imagine if that was my message? How many of you would come back Sunday after Sunday to hear that? Not many of you. Christina would, though, because she's more spiritual than all the rest of us. <laughs> Jeremiah had a vision, and the vision was this. I've got to say this because this is going to happen. But what's going to happen after that happens is something beautiful. Check this out. Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for you in Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back. That's why Jeremiah couldn't stop. He didn't just see the impending invasion. He saw the good effect the invasion was going to have. And he could not keep quiet about it. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me. And you will come and you'll pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me when you find me. When you seek me with all of your heart. The key to not giving up, the key to perseverance is vision. Having that long-term goal. When you have a long-term goal that you are shooting for, short-term setbacks won't phase you. Let me tell you this though. I have met a lot of people. They don't have any vision for their life. Even people who tell me they're Christian don't really have any vision. Well, I'll go to heaven someday, I guess. No vision for their life. When you don't have a vision for your life, you will give up on a lot of things God doesn't want you to give up on. You'll quit a lot of things. The reason you'll quit is because you don't see how it fits in the vision. 
If you don't have a vision, if you don't have a long-term goal, then all these short-term things are going to set you back. When you have a vision, when you have something worth living for, something that you are trying to build over the long haul of life, then when you get these little troubles, you'll be able to overcome them and endure them. But if you don't, then every time trouble comes, you'll run from it because your vision will be to avoid pain and suffering at all costs. That is no way to live your life. You'll die miserable and with regrets. It is our pain and suffering that makes us stronger. It's our pain and suffering that gives us dignity. It's our pain and suffering that helps us to refuse the lifestyle of giving up. Refuse believing that life should be easy. Refuse living by emotions. Refuse believing that success is a destination and seeing that vision. I know I shouldn't do this, but I look at my son's text messages. Some of you are like, man, I'm, I, I wouldn't want you to be my dad, you know? I mean, for those of you who grew up before text, that'd be like your parents at your bedroom door, like listening to your private conversations when you're on the phone. You know? I was listening. Uh, whether you think it was right or wrong, I, I've, 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 since, I've since come to a conclusion. I'm not going to do that. But at this point, I was doing that. And, uh, and there was a text that came in, and the text was this. Do you listen or watch XXX? That one got my attention. Because I wanted to see what my son would say. And uh, he didn't know that I was looking in on his... I made it so that all his texts came to my phone, even though they also came to his phone. Then the text, he, uh, he texted back. I'm Christian. And I really like my dad. He works hard. And he is there for me. tell you when I that's my vision that's my vision I hope one day when I go to heaven I'll hear well done good and faithful servant but I hope even more that when my sons enter heaven they will get a standing ovation well done. Well, 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 well done. Good and faithful servant. My vision is that my sons will be better men of God than me. And I don't think they're called into the ministry. Well, one, maybe. So I'm not, this isn't just be about being a pastor. It's about being a man of honor, a man of character. A man like Jeremiah who when the going gets tough, he won't quit. He won't just give up. He'll stay in the fight and keep going. So now that's my vision. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll even sacrifice my career for the overall vision that my sons, I mean, I, 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 I haven't really been honest. I've had a really broken life. 
Uh, I'm like a David. I'm not qualified to build the temple. I'm a man of blood, a man of war. Uh, I grew up in a violent city. I had horrible things happened to me. I did horrible things to people. I, I a brokenness, abandonment. I mean, I look back. It's a. I, I, I won't even go into it. I need therapy. I probably need years of therapy. I do need therapy for many reasons. <laughs> I just look back and I just, you know, God, if there's one gift I could get, I don't need a lot of money. I don't need a lot of anything. Just don't let my sons be like me. I want my sons to be better than me. And for the Lord, for them to be better than me, they got to be like Jeremiah, to have that vision, never to quit, never to give up, never to give in, to stay in the fight until you got no more fight left in you. To his dying breath, I pray that my three sons will proclaim the name of the Lord and die better men of God than me. That happens, that's my vision. Whatever I gotta suffer and persevere to get that vision, I'll do it. You may say, why are you sharing this? Because I want you to have one of those. Maybe you don't have kids. Or maybe your kids aren't your vision. Maybe your kids are already better men of God than you. Maybe there's a vision out there God has for you. And when you have it, when you find it, you'll be amazed at how much you can overcome to achieve it. Amen? Amen. So before we close tonight, I want to ask you, what is that vision? What is that that God has given you? That compass that will not move you, that will be your guide. It'll never be your destination, but always your direction. 